Welcome to Lumos Maxima, the Rolling Library Podcast. My name is Demi Schwartz, a Hufflepuff. My name is Jessica Minecci, a Ravenclaw. It's time to turn on the light because Hogwarts is about to welcome you home. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 7 of Lumos Maxima, which is an extra magical one because 7 is the most magical number. Yes it is, and this one is super special because it is about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. But first, I want to thank everybody for an awesome response on social media as per usual. Our Instagram and Twitter handle is at Lumos Maxima Cast, and our Facebook page is Lumos Maxima The Rolling Library Podcast. We also have a YouTube channel, which is Lumos Maxima The Rolling Library Podcast, where we post bonus content. So please subscribe if you haven't already. Also, we have a voicemail line, so hit us up at 412-228-5435. We will feature your voicemail in a future episode. We have our very first voicemail message to share from our listener, Maddie. Hello from your biggest fan. I love you guys. Thank you, Maddie, so much for your voicemail. It's awesome hearing from you. And if you guys haven't checked out episode five yet, you can listen to it and hear Maddie's thoughts on the Triwizard Tournament. And now, Jess, do you want to tell everybody our magical topic for episode number seven? Our topic is Thestrals. We're super excited to dive into the Thestrals in this episode, but right now, let's get into the recap of the latest issue of the Rolling Library magazine. Let's take a glimpse into the articles in the latest issue of the Rolling Library magazine. Issue number 42, which is June's issue of the Rolling Library magazine, is available now. You can check it out on therollinglibrary.com. Let's get into the articles. The cover article is called, What's the Ikebob? This is all about J.K. Rowling's political fairy tale. We have my article, which is called, Welcome to Dobby's Sorting. Which Hogwarts house does the elf belong in? This is a super fun article, which is written from the Sorting Hat's point of view. So make sure to read it and find out which house Dobby gets sorted into. Next up is Jess's article. It's called, What's in the Water? Magical creatures to watch out for on your summer holiday. This is the article we all need to get ready for summer. It gives a comprehensive guide to magical creatures that live in and near water. There's an article in here called Wave a Wand, Draco Malfoy. This is all about Draco's wand and it's super interesting. Also, if you're a Draco fan, please check out episode 6 of our podcast, which is all about Draco. We also have an article called Is the Creator of Azkaban the Cause of the Spanish Armada Sinking in 1588? This is a super fascinating article that analyzes this theory. Our last article is called Fantastic Beasts and How to End It. This is a super interesting article that imagines the ending of Fantastic Beasts. As always, we have a Wizarding World crossword puzzle and quote by Joe. Jess is going to read that for us. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. Albus Dumbledore Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Now let's get into the quote for this episode. It's time for Quick Quotes Corner. Today's quote is from chapter 34 of Order of the Phoenix called The Department of Mysteries. All his faith was in the beast below him, still streaking purposefully through the night, barely flapping its wings as it sped ever onward. 
In this chapter, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Neville, and Luna are traveling on the backs of Thestrals to the Department of Mysteries to save Sirius Black. Here, the Thestrals are advantageous because they are invisible to muggles and to most witches and wizards. Also, up until now, to Harry, Thestrals were just these eerie creatures that he and a select few could see because they all had witnessed death. With Thestrals as his only option to get to the Ministry, Harry is forced to put his and his friends' lives in the creature's hands. It is through the quick bond that Harry forms with the Thestrals that give the crew a fighting chance to save Sirius. Without the Thestrals' help, more people could have died in the battle. I think this is a super significant part of the book too because you kind of see a parallel between the Thestrals and Neville and Luna in a way. Because the Thestrals are kind of creatures that aren't really trusted because of their association with death. And then at the same time, Neville and Luna are seen as two characters that are kind of not as intelligent or not as cool, you could say, as the other ones, though Harry was a little bit skeptical about them coming along. And I feel like the Thestrals are some creatures that it takes time to find trust in them and it takes time to put faith in them. And this part of the book shows Harry really trusting the Thestrals to take him and his friends to the ministry. And in a way too, even though he was hesitant at first, Neville and Luna did come along and they proved themselves. So he kind of had to trust them as well. So it's kind of an interesting parallel between the Thestrals and those characters. Now it's time for Wizarding News in the Muggle World. Hey, it's Polly, our owl. She's bringing us the wizarding news in the muggle world. Thank you so much, Polly. Let's see what she brought us. First up is some exciting news for everybody who lives in the UK. The Hogwarts House editions of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix were released on June 11th. They were illustrated by Levi Pinfold and they're super awesome. So if you live in the UK, totally grab a copy of your house edition. Also, since our last episode, more chapters from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone have been released by Wizarding World. Let's take a look at them. Allison Soodle and Dan Fogler read Chapter 9, The Midnight Duel. Hoopy Goldberg reads Chapter 10, Halloween. And David Tennant with David Beckham reads Chapter 11, Quidditch. You can listen to all of these fabulous readings on the Wizarding Worlds podcast on Spotify, which is called Harry Potter at Home Readings, Harry Potter and the Philosophers slash Sorcerer's Stone. Now let's head over to Jess with Thestrals news. Let's talk about Thestrals. Thestrals are only visible to people who have witnessed death. They are black horses with white shining pupilless eyes, dragonish faces and necks, leathery bat-like wings, and black manes and tails. Their bodies are skeletal and fleshless, their skin clinging to their bones underneath glistening black coats. Thestrals are known for their fast flying abilities and insanely accurate sense of direction. In Harry's fifth year, Hagrid brings along a carcass for the Thestrals to eat during their Care of Magical Creatures class. Thestrals are attracted to the smell of blood, and the creatures come out of the forest to join the class and eat their fill. Contrary to popular belief, Thestrals are not bad omens or bad luck. Rather, they are gentle, useful, and clever creatures who are obedient to those who trust them. Nevertheless, the Ministry of Magic still classifies them as dangerous. Thestrals are associated with wizards who descend from the Celtic peoples. 
They are mainly found in the British Isles and Ireland, and can also be seen in parts of France and the Iberian Peninsula. In the Harry Potter universe, the only domesticated Thestrals live in the Forbidden Forest at Hogwarts, tended to by Hagrid, with Tenebris being his favorite. The domesticated Thestrals stick to themselves in their herd, and are trained not to harm students or the owls that fly up to the school. In the wild, Thestrals often eat birds. The original herd, composed of a male and five females, were believed to have come to Hogwarts as means of transportation for the students before the construction of the Hogwarts Express. Today, Thestrals pull the carriages from the train station up to the school. Witches and wizards who have not seen death assume the carriage is pulled by invisible horses. Dumbledore also uses Thestrals to help him travel on long journeys. Now, get excited because we are going to talk more about Thestrals in our Tales of Magic and Mischief segment. Now, it's time to dive into the book topic of the week for Tales of Magic and Mischief. We're going to start off our discussion on Thestrals at the point in Order of the Phoenix when Harry first sees them. On the way to Hogwarts, Harry is sitting in a compartment with Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Neville, and Luna, and they pull up to Hogsmeade Station. Hermione and Ron have to get off to make sure that everybody else on the train has their stuff in order because they're prefects. And in the whole hubbub, when everybody's on the platform, they all get separated. So Harry's standing there and he's looking out for Ron and Hermione, and he looks at the carriages that are nearby. Um, previously, he thought that they were horseless because um, he didn't see the creatures that were there, but he looks over and suddenly there are creatures pulling these carriages and he's like, huh, like, am I seeing something? This is how Harry perceives the horses. Standing still and quiet in the gathering gloom, the creatures looked eerie and sinister. Harry could not understand why the coaches were being pulled by these horrible horses when they were quite capable of moving along by themselves. So this is like super strange for Harry because he's pretty sure that someone just like pulled a fast one on him. Because he's like, oh no, these creatures are invisible. Like, why Why have they been replaced with these, like, ugly things that are supposed to, you know, keep us safe? Whereas they look super scary. Like, it, it's really shady that these things are pulling kids from ages, what, 11 to, like, 17 to school. Like, isn't that kind of shady? Like, if you saw them, what would you do? I don't know. I'd probably, like, run up to McGonagall and be like, uh, Professor, what are those and why are they here? <laughs> Yeah, like, it's super shady, and Harry's freaked out because he asks Ron about the horses, and Ron is confused because he can't see them, and Harry wheels Ron about, and he actually puts him in front of a Thestral, and Ron is still like, I don't know what you're doing, mate, like, are you okay, you know, like, and then later, uh, Luna Lovegood comes over, and she's kind of, Harry considers her a little bit creepy in the beginning because she could just kind of pops up out of nowhere um, and she assures Harry that the Thestrals have always pulled the carriages and that she can see them too and she says don't worry you're just as sane as I am that doesn't make Harry feel any better <laughs> like here's this girl that is just kind of strange you know like she's she's a little bit weird she's a little bit odder than most the fact that Harry can see the Thestrals and that none of his friends can is really disconcerting because it's almost like he's seeing a ghost. 
right? And when you see ghosts, you know, not everyone can see those either. I really like your connection to ghosts there, like it's seeing a ghost, because you do see thestuals if you witness death, and ghosts have a connection to death too, so I kind of like that connection that you made. Well, you know, what is really cool about thestuals is that once you can see them and you gain their trust, they are amazingly helpful. So let's look at some of the ways in which the Thestrals' great sense of direction and flying abilities has helped the characters throughout the series. So the first time we see the Thestrals being useful with directions is at the point in order when Harry really wants to get to the Ministry because he saw the tortured vision of Sirius that Voldemort put in his head and he just wants to get there. So Harry and Hermione get rid of Umbridge by taking her into the Forbidden Forest and the Centaurs take her away. And then Ginny, Luna, and Neville get away from the Inquisitorial squad and join them in the forest. And real quick, I find it super interesting that Jess mentioned earlier how Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Luna, and Neville were all together in the compartment. And now all six are together again to go to the ministry. I don't know if JK did that on purpose or if that's just a really cool coincidence. I'm still blown away by it, honestly. Like, that's so cool. So now they're all together, and Harry's like, how are we going to get to the ministry? And they're all contemplating ideas, and Luna's like, well, we'll have to fly, won't we? Harry kind of gives Luna attitude because he's basically telling her that we're not doing anything if she's including herself in that. And then at this point, Neville and Ginny kind of get all ticked off too because they were in the DA and they're basically telling Harry like, well, was the DA all just for show? Like, I thought it was supposed to be to fight you know who. Like, let's fight. Like, this is what we trained for. Let us help you. And Harry has this thought that I think is super like, I don't like it. Like, he kind of has this thought that if he could pick anybody from the DA to help him, Ron and Hermione, it would not be Ginny, Luna, and Neville. And that's just hits hard because he like didn't want them to come along and he didn't think they had the capabilities to help you know it kind of takes me off too because at the beginning of the da meetings neville wasn't able to stun anybody but by christmas break he was actually able to stun harry and so he really does have some skill and yeah maybe Ginny is younger than them and so is luna and luna's a little bit odd but they all loved the DA and they all tried really hard so that just makes me angry yeah that's just super frustrating and so they all kind of argue a little bit and then Harry's basically like well we still don't have any way to get to the ministry so and Luna's like I thought we like settled that we're gonna fly and this is what Harry says you might be able to fly without a broomstick but the rest of us can't sprout wings whenever we and Luna cuts him off shout out to Luna and she tells him that there are other ways of flying, and Ron comes in then, and this is what he says. I suppose we're gonna ride on the back of the khaki snorkel, or whatever it is. So Luna gets all defined here, and basically tells Ron that the crumple horn snorkak can't fly, but they can, and this is when two Thestrals show up, and this is what Luna says. Hagrid says they're very good at finding places their riders are looking for. So this is a really important part for Luna because her intelligence and Ravenclaw is really coming through and she's thinking outside the box of ways to get them to the ministry and the Thestrals are obviously a great option here. And Harry was still skeptical about it. The group kind of argues a little bit more and eventually more Thestrals show up and Harry's like, whatever, let's just go. 
Luna's the one who helps Hermione, Ron, and Ginny onto Thestrals. And I think this is very important because they were making fun of her. They weren't really accepting of her coming along. And now she's the one helping them. And I think that's a big moment for her because she's not the kind of person to dwell on the fact that they were kind of making fun of her and not treating her well, she was still being the better person and being like, all right, you know what? I'm going to be nice. I'm going to help them get up on these dust shows and we're going to go. Yeah, and this just is kind of a bad moment for Harry because if he's supposed to be the one in charge, he should be nice to those that are coming with him, especially because he thinks that Sirius is being tortured. So he should have been nice to her. And also, like, this just shows how Luna is able to take command right? She's just like, I'm not going to deal with this bickering. This is what we're doing and let's go. This just shows that Luna has the potential to be a leader and in this instance, she definitely was. So after everybody is aboard their thestrals, Harry's on his and he's looking down at his glossy black head and says, Ministry of Magic, Visitor's Entrance, London then, er, if you know where to go. And it does know where to go because a few seconds later, the Thest show takes flight and the other ones follow and all six of them end up safely at the ministry. So I think this is a super awesome part where we really get to see Harry putting his trust in the Thest shows for the first time and seeing how successful this flight is because of how intelligent and awesome these creatures are. Yeah, these creatures are super cool. And they're really fast. So if they needed speed, they got it. Totally. And I'm just thinking, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but so you see Thestrals if you witness death. But Thestrals' main ability is the sense of direction. So I was trying to think of a connection between the death thing with seeing them with the sense of direction. Maybe it's like... If you witness death, you kind of came to terms with it and experienced something traumatic and had to go through the cycle of grief. And maybe the direction that they have is kind of like you finding your own sense of direction after witnessing that. That's interesting because, you know, Ron and Hermione and Ginny can't see the Thestrals and the Thestrals are leading them in a direction now granted this direction is toward a battle and destruction and deaths that occur so another time in a series where we see the thestrals being used for transportation is at the beginning of deathly hallows during the whole flight of the seven potters so when the whole team shows up mad eye moody gives harry the whole rundown so thickness basically made it an imprisonable offense to connect the Dursley's house to the flu network, place a port key there, or operate in or out. Because Harry is underage, the trace is still on him. So if any of the others would try to operate him out, thickness will know about it and so will the Death Eaters. So the other thing going on here is that Harry has Lily's protection still, but it will break under two conditions. The first is when he turns 17, and the other is when Harry and the Dursleys part ways. So basically like when he no longer calls number four private drive home. So Moody and the others decided to break the charm early because the other option is waiting until he turns 17, which is basically waiting for Voldemort just to come for him as soon as he's of age. And so they are moving him that night and they don't believe that Voldemort knows that they're moving him. But we know that Snape under 
you know, Dumbledore's orders, still working for Dumbledore, is telling them the true date of his departure as to keep his loyalty to Voldemort, or so Voldemort still believes that he's loyal to him. So basically, their only options of transportation are Thestrals, Brooms, and Hagrid's motorbike, which was Sirius's. And so the plan is to go to houses that have connections to the Order, so 12 of these houses have been given as many protections as possible, and they're all going to be flying into different houses and then using a porky to the burrow. So Harry spots the flaw in the plan, which ironically, the very last chapter in Deathly Hallows is called The Flaw in the Plan. Wait a minute, take a seat. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. This is just so mind-blowing. How can you think of these things? I don't even think of them, and I'm sitting right here going... <laughs> Oh my gosh, mind-blowing. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> you know what that made me think of? And you need to calm down. Taylor Swift. You just yes. don't take to have a seat. <laughs> Damn. It's 7 a.m. <laughs> so the flaw in this plan is that Harry's like, hold up. How are we all going to be you know, flying to all these different places like... And then somebody could have noticed that, you know, there's one Harry, you know, like, I'm Harry, they're all going to come at me. Why would they go at you guys? And Moody's like, ah, well. And then he tells him the whole apologies potion thing, and Harry's not having this at all. And they're all like, everybody there is like, you know what? You know, there's all of us who are of age, and one wizard who can't do magic, like, don't even try to fight. Like, come on. So he eventually holds over his hairs because Moody's, like, done with his nonsense. And then the six Harrys that transform are Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, Fleur, and Mundungus Fletcher. And so they're all paired up with the others. And there are two Thestrals that are being used. The first one is Bill is taking Fleur on a Thestral because... She isn't fond of brims. And also, Kingsley is taking Hermione on a threshold because she isn't very comfortable with brims either. So obviously, Voldemort and the Death Eaters join the chase, and sadly, Hedwig and Mad-Eye die. But I think it's very important that the thestrals were used too because the whole death symbolism, like we have deaths from this flight, and Oh my god, here we go again. I'm just thinking about it, guys. Ready? Are you ready for it? So Hedwig dies and Mad-Eye dies. So we have two deaths and there were two thestrals being used. Oh my god. <laughs> I doubt that JK planned this. Like, this is just a coincidence that happened in her book. Because, I mean, who could just sit there and plan this kind of thing? <laughs> like, was this planned is my question. Um, I don't know. But I think it's very ironic that the two thestrals are like, the two deaths basically that happen so that could also be a big foreshadowing like when we see the two thestrals at the beginning like two people die but we don't know that and knowing that they're two thestrals that could be like a foreshadowing i do not know she did that on purpose but i'm shook right now but wait here's another thing that i'm shook about too is that the people who were on the thestrals didn't die so is it because they were on the thestrals that they didn't die because thestrals are like death omens that they're also saving people, so they're like half saving, half not. Yeah, I don't know. It's like it's yeah, it does. It's really symbolic. Like this whole thing is so symbolic, and I'm just completely gone. 
This is nuts. Yeah, it's like the Thestrals also embody safety. So mm-hmm. they would never kill their they would never let their riders get killed. Right. Yeah, this is nuts. Super cool. This super is super deep. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also, I think Demi is going to talk about how the Thestrals were used at the Battle of Hogwarts at the end of the seventh book. Yeah, and this is super cool, too, because during the Battle of Hogwarts, all the other creatures, like the giants joined in, the centaurs joined in, the house elves, and so did the Thestrals. And what they did was fly around Voldemort's giant's heads and scratch at their eyes. I think this is super interesting because they're not only creatures that are good with direction, but they're also very loyal because during this battle, they're fighting on Hogwarts' side. They're scratching at Voldemort's giant's eyes. Like, you know, um, you guys are super tall that the wizards aren't gonna get to you. So guess what? My claws are coming for your eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) They are awesome. And this is, like really shows their uses like to me was saying because Hagrid mentions in um Harry's care of magical creatures class that the Thestrals don't get a lot of work except for helping Dumbledore travel well guess what they're put to work in these last in these last couple books because they really show their true colors and they're pretty awesome now that we talked about how useful Thestrals are let's take a closer look at three characters who can see them and how this is significant we're going to start off with Harry Many readers wonder why Harry wasn't able to see the Thestrals until the fifth book. Harry was sitting in his crib and he watched his mom die. So in theory, he should have been able to see the Thestrals at the beginning of the first book. However, at that point in time, Harry was young and he was unable to comprehend and understand what death actually means. And in his fourth year, Cedric Diggory is killed in cold blood at the site of Voldemort's rising. This experience allows Harry to realize the finality and cruelty that comes from such a killing. Now, once Harry had this revelation and was able to understand death, that's when he was able to see the Thestrals. Let's look at three deaths that Harry experienced throughout the series. Cedric's death, Sirius's death, and Dobby's death. Let's start with Cedric's death. At the end of the Triwizard Tournament, Cedric and Harry both touched the Triwizard Cup at the same time. The Triwizard Cup was a port key that took them to the site of Voldemort's Rising. Obviously, when you touch the cup, you're supposed to win the tournament and that's supposed to be it. But they're like, oh my gosh, is this a test? Like, where are we? We must be, like, miles away from the castle. And so they're kind of just standing there you know, with their wands out, and they're like, oh, maybe something's coming towards us. And sure enough, Wormtail approaches holding baby, ugly baby Voldemort, and they all kind of stare at each other. Wormtail is cloaked, so Harry and Cedric have no idea who he is and what's going on. As they stare at one another, Harry's scar begins to hurt. He drops his wand, and he puts his hands on his head, and then Harry falls down. From far away above his head, he heard a high, cold voice say, Kill the spare, a swishing noise and a second voice, which screeched the words to the night, Avada Kedavra. A blast of green light blazed through Harry's eyelids, and he heard something heavy fall to the ground beside him. After this happens, the pain in Harry's scar gets worse, and he throws up before the pain subsides. Then he opens his eyes, and he sees Cedric dead on the ground beside him. 
This is what the book says right after Cedric dies. For a second that contained an eternity, Harry stared into Cedric's face at his open gray eyes, blank and expressionless as the windows of a deserted house, at his half-open mouth, which looked slightly surprised. Isn't that terrible? Like, basically, he's describing Cedric as an empty shell. His soul had left his body. He looked like a decrepit old house that was empty. Like, that's just... It, it underlines the cruelty of the death. The book says that Harry feels numb disbelief before Wormtail drags him away. So this death is sad and important for so many reasons. Because when Harry saw Lily die, that's a vague memory of his. And although the Dark Lord didn't kill Cedric, Wormtail did with Voldemort's wand, it's still basically as if the Dark Lord killed him. So Harry is now able to understand the magnitude of what Voldemort's cruelty is. Voldemort killed Harry's parents because they were standing in the way of Harry, which was a threat that Voldemort wanted to get rid of. But those deaths had a motive behind them because Voldemort wanted to get to Harry. But there was no motive or reason for Cedric to die other than the fact that he was there and he was standing in the way. This cruelty scared and jarred Harry, and it caused Harry to have nightmares the next summer when he was home in Privet Drive. It also caused him to tell everybody he could that Voldemort was back because he was also scared of what would happen if no one knew. This also was the catalyst that broke the camel's back because it encouraged Harry to fight tooth and nail so that Voldemort wouldn't kill anybody else, so that more innocent lives wouldn't be lost. Harry also felt responsible for Cedric's death because he was the one who kind of said, you know, no, you've won too, you deserve to touch the trophy, and now Cedric's gone. I feel like another reason why this is super traumatic is because Harry didn't have time to process it. Like you said, when they touched the Triwizard Cup and got to the graveyard, they didn't know what was happening. And Cedric's death was very abrupt and quick, and Harry didn't really have the time to process what was happening. And then afterward, he didn't have time to process his death either because that's when the whole, like, rebirth thing started happening. Yeah, I mean, it was like, almost like... You know, he had the summer months to kind of process it, but at the same time, he didn't because he was constantly being guarded and then he got attacked by a Dementor and then he was suddenly thrust into the Order. So he really didn't have too much time to come to terms with Cedric's death. No, and I don't think it helped either that at the school, everybody saw Harry bring Cedric's body back. So it's not only his own guilt, but basically like dealing with blame from other people too. Yeah, that's that's true. Because a lot of people also didn't believe that the Dark Lord was back. They're like, oh, you know, Harry should have might have killed him to get the cup. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like all around a terrible situation. The next death that Harry experiences is Sirius's death, which full disclosure, when I was reading this series for the first time was the death that hit me the hardest. I was reading the Braille book at the time and I remember it fell out of my hands and off my couch and I literally collapsed on the couch sobbing Aww. like it was terrible I think Aww. I was like 10 years old when I read this <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how Sirius dies so they are all fighting in the battle of the department of mysteries Sirius is fighting Bellatrix Dumbledore comes in and everybody basically stops fighting except for those two 
Sirius is goading Bellatrix on saying, like, you can do better than that because her spells aren't hitting him. And then before anyone can do anything, Bellatrix actually hits Sirius in the chest with a jet of red light. And the book says, the laughter had not quite died from his face, but his eyes widened in shock. Harry's holding Neville at this point, and he releases Neville and jumps down the steps towards Sirius. Dumbledore also turns to the dais, but it's too late. It seemed to take Sirius an age to fall. His body curved in a graceful arc as he sank backward through the ragged veil hanging from the arch, and Harry saw the look of mingled fear and surprise on his godfather's wasted, once handsome face as he fell through the ancient doorway and disappeared behind the veil, which fluttered for a moment as though in a high wind, and then fell back into place. Previously, Harry had heard voices behind the veil, and when Sirius falls behind it, Harry's confused, because if there were voices behind the veil, that had to mean that, that the people were there, and the people were just waiting to reappear again. So Sirius had to reappear, right? Well, Harry tries uh, to get to Sirius, but Lupin holds him back. And when confusion turns into understanding, Harry is defeated. He knows Sirius is gone, and then he decides to go after Bellatrix, which doesn't work out for him because, you know, Voldemort and Dumbledore show up, and then they duel, and then Valdi takes Bellatrix away. So Harry doesn't really succeed in getting his revenge. So this death is one of the worst in the series. So again, Harry feels guilty because if he hadn't believed that Sirius was at the Department of Mysteries, he never would have come. And, you know, Sirius died in the process, so he came to save Sirius, but yet Sirius still dies. And also, like, if he or Dumbledore had gotten there in time, um, the situation may have been prevented. Comparing the death to Cedric's, like, Cedric was defenseless and he was unable to prevent his death, but Sirius was not. Sirius had the choice to come to the Department of Mysteries, and he had his wand, so he was able to defend himself, and he did his best to do so, but again, he chose to fight and he died. So I guess because Sirius chose to be there, Harry shouldn't feel guilty about Sirius's death. Or he shouldn't feel responsible, I should say. Sirius meant more to Harry than Cedric did. Sirius was the last family Harry had left. Sirius was stepping into his role as godfather for the first time. Harry was looking forward to spending holidays with him. He was looking forward to a life with Sirius after this was all over. All of this was ripped away when Sirius died. All of these dreams, all of these fantasies of being together, this was ripped away. That is what is really sad about this death. We could also say that Sirius's sacrifice was a prime example of good to Harry. He was a good person. He fought for what was right. And in this instance, we remember Sirius because he loved Harry so much. He was a good person. He fought for what he believed in. And even though he died in the effort, at least he died a courageous death. Also, like Cedric's death, Harry was not going to let Sirius die in vain. Harry is still determined to fight Voldemort to the very end. Harry's family was just ripped away from him. Cedric's family was torn apart when he died. So Harry is determined, again, to not let more families be ripped apart by this conflict. So if you think about it, those deaths are literally a year apart. 
So Harry didn't even have a year, longer than a year, to recover or start to heal from Cedric's death before Sirius died, which is even more traumatic. And I also think that this is the death that really shows that, like, you know, earlier in the Order, they all said that, you know, if you're a member of the Order of the Phoenix, you know your life is at risk and you're going to take that risk. And you know that if you die fighting, you're fighting for good and you're doing the right thing. And this is the first time that we really see an Order member get killed because of, you know, what they are fighting for. And it it's sad that it had to be serious, but this really puts into perspective for Harry that the members of the Order of the Phoenix know 100% what they're getting themselves into. And they still continue to fight even after this. This also reminds me of, in the beginning of the book, um, Mad-Eye shows Harry a picture of the old Order of the Phoenix, and we see, you know, the Potters, we see Sirius and Lupin and Wormtail, and we see Neville's parents, and we all know what happened to all of those people. Um, We all know what became of them, and they're saying, oh, this time is going to be different, like, less people are going to pass away, but still, people are going to pass away in the fight, and that's the sacrifice that has to be made. The final death that um, we're going to talk about that Harry witnessed is Dobby's death, which is arguably one of, like, the second, probably the second saddest in the series for me. So, everybody's trapped at Malfoy Manor, right? They're all screwed, but then Dobby appears, and, and and they're like, oh my gosh, you can operate out of this cellar? Cool, take us with you. So um, Dobby leaves with Ollivander, Dean, and Luna, and they go to Shell Cottage. Well, Dobby comes back just in time to rescue Ron, Hermione, Harry, and Griphook from the clutches of the Malfoys and the Death Eaters. But before Dobby disapparates, Bellatrix throws a knife at Dobby, and it hits him in the chest. So the fact that Dobby was actually able to get them to Shell Cottage with a knife protruding from his chest is just something that is, like, crazy awesome. Because as his life is literally leaving his body, his magic is too, the fact that his magic actually sustained them enough to get there is a miracle. They land outside of Shell Cottage, and Dobby sways on his feet. Harry and Dobby both look down at the knife in his chest, and that's when Harry knows that Dobby's a goner. Dobby stretches out his arms to Harry, and Harry catches him and lays him down. Harry pleads to Dobby, don't die, don't die, but obviously that's no use because we know he's going to die. The elf's eyes found him, and his lips trembled with the effort to form words. Harry Potter. And then, with a little shudder, The elf became still, and his eyes were nothing more than great glassy orbs, sprinkled with light from the stars they could not see. Even though this is super traumatic, and this is, hands down, the death that hit me the hardest on first read, um, the description has a sort of beauty to it, in a way, with the way, like, you know, the stars were sparkling in his eyes. And I just see a very different description between Dobby's death and say Cedric's because Cedric's was in cold blood and you know even though Bellatrix threw that knife at him Dobby died very bravely and I feel like the description of it's like more peaceful like Cedric's description of like his death was more like cold empty and stuff but Dobby's like seeing the stars in his eyes and everything and 
like a more peaceful feel to it. it it gives like i feel like him more closure because he died courageously and doing good for harry so there's just a very big difference between those two i think yeah i think so too and comparing it to sirius's death like dobby also knew the risk he was going to take um to save harry right he knew that there was a risk involved but he didn't care and what makes it even more i guess i could say interesting is that dobby was free he had no master of his own but in a way harry turned out to be his master like he did everything he could for harry right he helped him in chamber of secrets um, because he thought that he was going to get killed he helped them in order find the room of requirement he did everything he could for Harry as if Harry was his own master just because of the good that Harry showed Dobby in freeing him. Like, okay, even though Dobby kind of served Harry in a way, Harry didn't view him as a slave and Dobby didn't refer to Harry as his master, but they still had that kind of relationship, but it was a healthier relationship rather than like a house elves and their masters would be. But... I feel like that bond kind of breaking when Dobby died is what really hits hard for kind of, I feel like, both of them. Because if I'm remembering correctly, the very first thing that Dobby says in Chamber when he goes to see Harry is Harry Potter. And the very last thing he says is Harry Potter. Right, and also, if you think about it, elves are supposed to be timid and submissive, but Dobby was braver than all of them. He was probably braver than most wizards. Like, most wizards would have been like, okay, you're dead. Like, it's fine. Like, let Harry Potter die. Dark Lord's here, you know, you got you got no hope. But Dobby's like, yeah, I got hope because the Malfoys were my masters and, you know, I'm able to save Harry, so he did. And Harry appreciates what Dobby did for him. Like, Harry realizes that Dobby was brave and that Dobby was just an amazing elf. And the most honorary thing you can do for a soldier that's fallen is to dig them a grave, and that's what Harry does. I think it's even more powerful the fact that he didn't use magic. He did it the right way for the elf. And then he carved, you know, on the tombstone, here lies Dobby, a free elf. Like, he paid tribute to him, and he gave him the barrel that he deserved. And I feel like I this is something else that hit me so hard every time. It's a burial. And Harry thinking to himself that he thought back to Dumbledore's funeral, and he felt like Dobby deserved the same amount of people he deserved such he deserved just as big of the funeral as Dumbledore did like we were talking about before with the Thestrals is that you know after you see a person die you can see the Thestrals and maybe Thestrals in a sense do save people like we were talking about with the flight of the seven potters but they're also have a little bit of an omen of eeriness and death because after this point harry sees all of these deaths so there's kind of a strange thing going on because they they embody safety but they also embody death so it's a a very um double-sided symbol next we're going to talk about luna so we know that luna is the one who first told harry that she can see the thestrals too and In this moment, it rises in the readers' minds, well, who did Luna see die? And 
Another part in the book that brings this up again and brings her mysteriousness up again is when, like before, when Jess was talking about with Sirius's death in that room with the archway in the Department of Mysteries, before the whole battle happened, when Harry and crew were trying to find the Hall of Prophecy, they went into the room with the archway and there's a very good description in the book about the archway that I'm going to read here. There was a raised stone dais in the center of the lowered floor. And upon this dais stood a stone archway that looked so ancient, cracked and crumbling, that Harry was amazed the thing was still standing. Unsupported by any surrounding wall, the archway was hung with a tattered black curtain or veil, which, despite the complete stillness of the cold surrounding air, was fluttering very slightly as though it had just been touched. So let's just let that sink in. How mysterious is that? It's super strange because it's like a breeze is coming from another world or another dimension. And it's like beckoning you toward it. It like wants you to come closer. Yes, exactly. And speaking of that... Harry is very intrigued by this and to him it has a sort of beauty about it and he goes over to it and then he starts to hear whispering and murmuring and Hermione is super scared at this point and she's like Harry come on let's go back away because Harry's like getting closer and closer to it and then this is when Luna says that she can hear the voices too and that there are people in there and Hermione's like there isn't any in there it's just an archway there's no you know, there's no room for anybody to be there. Luna, on the other hand, agrees with Harry and what he is experiencing with the veil. And I think that this shows a big difference between Luna and Hermione because Hermione's kind of close-minded and Luna has the ability to be more open to the world around her. This is one instance where we all need to sit back and admire Luna because like, in real life, we know a lot of people who are close-minded. We know a lot of people who have one opinion, and that's what they believe, and they're not going to change it. Whereas, since Luna is open to all of these things, she is more able to experience the world. So, after the battle with the Department of Mysteries, and everybody's back at Hogwarts, Harry and Luna are together, and Harry's not feeling like, you know, he doesn't want to go to the feast, he's feeling down about Sirius... And Luna, being the observant and caring person that she is, notices Harry's sadness and brings up Sirius and says, you know, Jenny told me that he was your godfather. And Harry's not bothered by the fact that she's talking about Sirius. And at this moment, Harry remembers that Luna can see the Thestrals and he asks her if she saw anybody die. This is what Luna says. Yes, my mother. She was a quite extraordinary witch, you know. But she did like to experiment, and one of her spells went rather badly wrong one day. I was nine. And then she also tells Harry, I still feel very sad about it sometimes, but I've still got dad. And anyway, it's not as though I'll never see mum again, is it? Harry isn't too certain. He's like, uh, is it? And then Luna says, oh, come on, you heard them just behind the veil. Didn't you? In that room with the archway. They were just lurking out of sight. That's all. You heard them. So I feel like this whole conversation with Harry not only shows them bonding and 
kind of the spark of a friendship, but it also shows Luna's ability, like we were saying before, to kind of believe the extraordinary. And in general, her being able to see the Thestrals due to her mom passing away when she was so young, this makes her a stronger person. It makes her more open. It makes her very accepting. And I feel like she matured quicker than the other students because experiencing such a death like that when she was nine versus Harry, his parents died when he was only a baby. So he didn't actually process that death at that time. But Luna as a nine-year-old, as a child, is old enough to comprehend what was happening. So experiencing that made her kind of grow differently than the others. And an example of how she kind of accepts things without proof is when Harry was telling everybody that Voldemort was back and nobody was believing him. Luna made it a point to tell him in front of their classmates, which is a bold thing to do, to stand up to, you know, your own peers and literally tell Harry, you know what, I believe that Voldemort's back. I think this makes Luna a very interesting character because we all know those people who are judged on how they are on the outside. Luna is a little bit odd, but it isn't widely known that her mother died when she was nine, and that definitely contributed into the person she became. And I love how Harry and Luna have this connection because it allowed her to be open, and it shows that this is who she is underneath, and it's, it's such a great thing to see. I love how complex JK's characters are because, like real people, you see one thing on the outside, but on the inside, the person could be the same or completely different. And in this instance, we see the beauty and the awesomeness that is Luna, and that is why she's one of my favorite characters. Speaking of favorite characters, guess who we're going to talk about next? <laughs> It's happening again, guys. It's happening again. <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about Neville. So during one care of magical creatures class, Hagrid is taking everybody into the Forbidden Forest because the Thestrals prefer the dark. And when they get into the forest, Harry sees the Thestral, obviously, and he looks around and notices that only two other people seem to see them. One is Neville and the other is a Slytherin boy. So the class is in motion and then Professor Umbridge turns up for one of her ridiculous inspections and notices that Neville can see the Thestral and so she decides to ask him questions. I'm going to read this passage straight out of the book because ugh, I can't with this whole part. You can see the Thestrals, Longbottom, can you? She said. Neville nodded. Whom did you see die? She asked, her tone indifferent. My, my granddad, said Neville. And what do you think of them? She said, waving her stubby hand at the horses, who by now had stripped a great deal of the carcass down to bone. Erm, said Neville nervously with a glance at Hagrid. Well, there, er... Okay, students are too intimidated to admit they are frightened, muttered Umbridge, making another note on her clipboard. No, said Neville, looking upset. No, I'm not scared of them. It's quite all right, said Umbridge, patting Neville on the shoulder with what she evidently intended to be a reassuring smile, though it looked more like a leer to Harry. 
So, okay, first of all, I just can't believe that Umbridge is so, like, okay, I'm gonna say it. I think, like, she's so heartless that she's literally asking a 15-year-old student who they saw die with such an indifferent, careless tone. Like, she doesn't care that this could be a sensitive topic. She just cares about being her, you know, big high inquisitor and ruining Hagrid's reputation. Like, she doesn't care that she's talking about such a sensitive thing with a student. Yeah, this just makes me hate her even more. Like, it's one thing how in Snape's class he criticizes Neville's potions and makes him feel like a small, inferior person, but it's another thing to talk about a personal topic like this and act like it's no big deal that someone close to you died in front of your eyes. And she's doing it in front of the whole class. Like, she, it's like a class is going on, all the students are around, and she's asking Neville these things in front of his peers. And this shows Neville's bravery, I think, because this is obviously a sensitive topic for him. And he's answering her and saying he's not afraid of the Thestrals and giving her honest answers. And he's doing that in front of his classmates, which is just super brave to me. So for everybody who can see Thestrals, it's a reminder of the death in their life and the loss they've experienced. And for Neville, that goes beyond his grandfather because of the whole situation with his parents, Frank and Alice Longbottom, who were two highly respected orers, being tortured into insanity by Bellatrix Lestrange who used the Cruciatus curse. So during Christmas, Harry and crew go to St. Mungo's to visit Mr. Weasley. While they are there, they run into Lockhart on the spell damage floor and his healer thinks that Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny are there to see, you know, Lockhart when they're not. They just ended up on that floor by accident. But they follow the healer and Lockhart back into the ward for permanent spell damage. And at the far end of the ward, there are two beds that are surrounded by flowery curtains for privacy. And it's a real shock to everybody when Neville and his grandmother come out from around the curtains. And obviously Harry knows the truth about Neville's parents, but the rest don't. Ron, being Ron, blurts out, Neville! And Neville jumps and cowers as though a bullet had narrowly missed him, and he also blushes and doesn't make eye contact. Neville's grandmother starts to talk to the rest and saying that Neville was a good boy, but he doesn't have his father's talent. And then she asks Neville, you know, if he told them what happened to his parents, and Neville shakes his head that he didn't. And this is what Neville's grandmother says, which makes me super angry. Well, it's nothing that you should be ashamed of. You should be proud, Neville, proud. They didn't give their health and sanity so their only son would be ashamed of them. Which is just super harsh. And Neville goes on to say that he's not ashamed, but his grandmother scolds him some more and then tells Harry and crew the truth. So around this point, Alice comes over to Neville and gives him an empty Dribbles blowing gum wrapper. And Neville thanks her. His grandmother tells him to throw it away, but Neville puts it in his pocket. And here's a passage that follows that is very, very deep. Neville looked around at the others, his expression defiant, as though daring them to laugh. But Harry did not think he'd ever found anything less funny in his life. So, again, Neville is 
the character who is targeted, bullied, made fun of, and in this instance, Neville is honestly afraid that Harry and the others are going to make fun of him because his parents are lying in hospital beds, basically with their minds completely gone. And this breaks my heart. And going back to what we were saying about Luna, she's not the most open because of the way that others perceive her. But once you get to know her, she's more complex. And we have the same situation here with Neville because due to the way that he's constantly being treated, if I were him, I'd never open my mouth about what happened to my parents because this reason right here, he thought he was going to be made fun of. The only thing he knows is mistreatment. So why would he ever say anything? So going back to the Thestrals, Neville being able to see them and being reminded of his grandfather's death and what happened to his parents, like Harry and Luna, this gave him strength. Neville fought in all the battles in the Second Wizarding War and he even killed Nagini. He was the last Horcrux. So if we wrap up by looking at all three of them, Harry, Luna, and Neville, we all see similarities because what they experienced allowed them to be braver. It allowed them to be more open-minded and accepting and it made them stronger. And all three of them fought till the end. And I think it's very interesting that we had this discussion today and analyze these characters through this lens because you definitely see in this way how complex they are and how these experiences really shape them into who they are. Yeah, and death is a part of life, right? You're born and then you die. But you can also experience other people's deaths and that defines you as a person. And we see here how the characters are defined by death. The Thestrals are symbolic in that it makes us focus on death and the things we've witnessed and it really causes us to unpack the meaning behind our actions after we see death. Yeah, totally. And I think we also should talk briefly about how after the Battle of Hogwarts, everybody who fought in that battle and survived, they'll see Thestrals now because they all witnessed loved ones and fellow Hogwartians and fighters fighting with them. And I feel like going to the end of the series, there's so much death in the series, there's so much loss. But at the same time, like looking just at Harry, Luna, and Neville, they're all united in the fact that they've experienced death and they're kind of connected on that level. And now it's kind of a not a beautiful thing in a way, but it's kind of like a it's it's a mysterious thing in a way that everybody who survived that battle they're all connected through those deaths now and it's like something that binds them together and that will last a lifetime yeah this discussion has been super illuminating and since thestrals are one of my favorite magical creatures i'm glad that we were able to talk about them Definitely. And please let us know your thoughts on the Thestrals. If you have anything to add, if you have any of your own insights, we'd love to hear them. And our next episode comes out on July 3rd. And you guys, I'm telling you right now, I am very, 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 very excited. <laughs> yes, stay tuned and also get excited because we're having another special guest. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for coming back to Hogwarts with us in this episode of Lumos Maxima, the Rolling Library podcast. Hedwood's theme and leaving Hogwarts in this episode were originally composed by John Williams and arranged by your favorite Hufflepuff. Until next time, three, two, one, Knox.